Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Tobias Jones on the podcast today. Tobias is one of those authors that every time he publishes a book, it will show up on everyone's book of the year lists and award nominations. He's an investigative journalist, he is a fiction author, he is a broadcaster, and he is a chronicler of the charms and challenges of building and then living in communities. These books include Utopian Dreams and A Place of Refuge. Investigative journalist books include Blood on the Altar and The Dark Heart of Italy, two books detailing the corruption in the powers and principalities of Italy. Also based in that country is Ultras, Tobias's most recent book, examining the fan culture that has sprung up around Italian football, the powerful economic, political and religious forces that are at play in those cultures. Tobias lives in Italy, but is English, and he joined me over Zoom to talk about what it's like living as a foreigner in another country, living in community, writing about powers and principalities, and everything in between. Because you're not, you're not a Twitter presence, are you? No, I jumped off Facebook. I was on Facebook for a while, but it's, I felt like it's a toxic place to, to yeah, try and yeah, talk yeah. about this stuff. And I, I kind of I knew almost deliberately that I was going to make my audience smaller by mm-hmm. not involving myself in that stuff. But I actually feel like that stuff is part of the problem. Yeah, I, Facebook is is a major major problem. I'm I'm a I'm a Twitter a late convert to Twitter, which I find as a journalist, you know, for the media, it's extremely helpful. Okay. All right. So it's it, like your livelihood is based on it, basically. Mm, mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, a Facebook, it's a trap, I've though. Never, I never I never liked Facebook. I never. No, yeah. I, I could see that my, I was getting I could see that my livelihood was going to become connected to it. And I thought, I don't actually want this to happen. I better mm. jump off now before it gets too important to me. Yeah. <laughs> so what so how does Twitter work for you? Do you actually engage with in conversation on it or do you use it to yeah monitor? It's, I mean, it's just full of you know journalists and media folk it's sort of you know yeah it's if if you're a if you're a, a writer or a journalist i mean i resisted it for many years probably for the same reason you did and partly because i lived communally for so long i thought that's kind of fake community yes uh, and then and actually you know i found it you know it got you. To, well, I, I, I find it a very good way to sort of build networks and, and link to people. Um, that is undeniable. Mm, yeah, that mm. is true. I, I was quite convinced. Have you read Andrew Marant's book, Antisocial? Have you seen that? No, a friend told me about it the other day, though. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm kind of convinced by that. And then also yeah. the famous book about 10 reasons why you should delete your social media account. Mm, mm. i read those and i was like yeah fair enough i Mm -hmm. i'm convinced (laughs) Mm -hmm. well i'll read them i'll let you know (laughs) it's really good so so are you are you working on a book on the mafia right now or is this just a Mm. continuation of your ongoing interest in no i mean my my next book is a is a 
journey down the River Po, which is okay. the longest river. I'm actually going up it, so I'm starting, well, I have started at the Delta, and I'm working to the source for all sorts of weird reasons. Um, and so that's the, that's the next book. Um, but my, you probably know, I mean, my, my books tend to be sort of a strange combination of, you know, nature writing, communal living and crime. So, <laughs> well, this is one of the things I was going to ask you about, actually, is the, is where you see the golden thread connecting all these different, these different uh, human endeavors that you're, that you're observing. I mean, you've yeah. got blood on the altar, which is, I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. And I just, every time you come up with a book, I devour it. Even if I'm going oh, to like it. So mm -hmm. I'm halfway through ultras right now. And I, mm -hmm. I don't like football at all. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to like this. But of course, it's not really about football, is it? No. Uh, and, uh, and blood on the altar is like all about corruption in a Italian city and the church. And utopian dreams is about finding community in different areas. And I wonder... What is the connection? Have you found a connection between ultras and community living and the Catholic Church and Italian politics? Um, I mean, there are lots of connections and lots of, of differences, obviously. I mean, I think a major theme in not just my books or journalism, but in the way I live is human groups. Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by group dynamics and what happens to groups and in what situations and so that that can sort of apply to obviously communal living but also crime to travel writing um so that that i suppose is one of the one of the main things that, that I'm, I'm i'm interested in it's i was i was observing this i was actually thinking about it yesterday i was thinking you tend to describe situ or human groups really well, like with lots of empathy, like you really get a sense of the real people in them. And yet the groups you're describing, I wouldn't want to join any of them. <laughs> like uh, it's almost like these good people are part of bad movements. Why do you, why do you think that happens? Why, why could you describe people who are fully empathetic and lovely well-rounded human beings and yet they all seem to be caught up in toxic groups how do, why do good people make bad groups yeah it's a big question isn't it i mean <laughs> there are all sorts of things i think you know one of my favorite jokes is how many parishioners does it take to change a light bulb Mm -hmm. The answer is, of course, change, change. <laughs> and that sort of inbuilt aversion to any evolution. And you then get this sort of static, petrified, we've always done it this way, so this is the way it will always be done mentality. That's one major element. I think leadership is always an issue. I've just gulped down in one sitting the documentary series on San Patrignano that as you may know is the sort of the rehab that was created in Italy in the 1970s of the, of the first wave of the heroin addiction in Italy and it's fascinating study in exactly what you're talking about about how big-hearted altruism can become very weird and twisted and actually dangerous 
and yeah. the leadership is a major part of that and and you know i think it's caught up with a messiah complex i think very often leaders think i am the savior that's true in all sorts of groups but i think we can talk about rehab and therapeutic communities maybe more and later but i think when you are working with addicts as they were at san patrignano and as we were in windsor hill wood it's you know egalitarianism is is very tricky if you're trying to keep people clean and dry and you can very quickly become hierarchical which may be a good thing but very quickly your altruism can turn into you know i'm the good cop and i'm also going to be the bad cop so leadership is is a major one i mean another major one i think is internal communication i mean i've been freelance you know without a regular job for 22 years yeah. and in 2020 i applied for and got a job for the first time and and then because of covid i was made redundant but i found a fascinating study in massive failure of internal communication so the boss was boasting to me as 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 a sort of you know as a sign of how great and important he was that he had 11,000 unreplied emails in his <laughs> inbox right now, that's how important i am and so you know that that comes to issues of delegation and trust in your staff and so i think internal communications are, are really important i mean there's so much isn't there so much that can make groups go odd i mean part of the uh, in play in a place of refuge it, it almost seems one of the through lines to that book is your awareness that you are a leader you almost accidentally discover yourself to be a leader of this community yeah and i mean you have to set down bound you didn't want to be a boundary making blunt person and you almost you become more blunt and boundaried as you as your community becomes more established mm, i mean so in that case you know sort of eight years of living in a community i was constantly questioning myself you know is this an ego trip is it vanity is it a messiah complex to which the honest answer is yes sometimes yeah, yeah. um but in terms of becoming a leader i mean leadership is 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 so complicated i think you know most wise people know that we've gone a very long way from that sort of 19th century model of someone who exhorts and enthuses and shouts and disciplines and tells you what to do it's 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 much more an act of listening and bringing people together and defining direction as a team you know that sort of collegiate leadership i think most people recognize is is more powerful but again that's very difficult to do if you are trying to run a community in your family home with for example ex offenders you know how how far can you take that egalitarianism if the the chips on the table the investments and the commitments are very very different for the people around the table i mean what with hindsight how would you have started do you, could you have started windsor hill differently now now that you eight years on or it's well it's more than 10 how many how many 12 years now isn't it since you started it yeah that's right and we you know funnily enough it's interesting we're having this conversation now stephen because 
you know, we're just about to start the process to try and do something similar in the hills or mountains okay. here in Italy. You've got it bad. There's something in you. you. You've got community living in your blood, haven't you? Yeah, I do. I do. And, you know, we could talk about why that is. And there are all sorts of probably strange reasons why I, I you know, love communal living. And, and I believe that sharing things is the solution for large majority of contemporary problems but as we start this process Mm. of building a crew to try and create a communal farm in the hills and mountains we're trying to do it very differently which is to have a site which is either owned by many people or owned even better by nobody and we wanted to do that with Windsor Hill Wood but despite having a very good crew who were committed to the idea for all sorts of understandable reasons, everyone dropped out, you know, they didn't have the money. They couldn't take the kids out of school. They had proper jobs in big cities, blah, 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 understandable reasons. But it meant that we had to do it off our own bat. And there are huge advantages of that. There there was no sort of confusion about what the model was. There's no confusion about purpose or vision or, direction or even leadership but actually I I would like to do it without either without being the big owner but without being an owner at all because ownership brings all sorts of issues as well. How do we do that in a world which is well the famous quote it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism so how do you live in a world that's built on the ownership of land and the management of property. Do people joining you even have the imagination to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are all sorts of ways it can be done. And it depends, obviously, on what one's life circumstances are. We're talking about the deepest end of sharing, which is sharing a roof and a table and possibly even a bathroom. Yeah. There are many ways, obviously, of sharing things that are in the shallow end, but, you know, in a way, just as important. There are all sorts of lovely examples of rows of 15 terraced houses that have all very sensibly decided to get rid of their garden fences so that not all the families have to have a slide and a swing and a bat and ball. And actually, when you see these streets that have a hectare of land that's shared, and you know it's still on paper there's the red line in the in the deeds that says that's my garden that's yours but but the amount of energy Stephen to persuade 15 people <laughs> in, in 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 a terrace to do that is so difficult which is why it's happened so rarely it makes my head hurt just thinking about it so it is it's a huge you know re-commoning yeah what has become private is so difficult. Privatizing the commons is is a doddle. You know what's not to like. You sort of take the you take the common common land or you know the building or the the library and you slice it up and you make a profit. And to yeah. do it the other way is very very difficult. Are you going to be doing this with your family again? I mean, is there? I don't. I don't know. We don't need to give personal details about your children, but. Are they going to, is your whole family going to be as involved in this new venture as they were in the previous one, do you think? Well, they're sort of, you know, they're 
teenagers now yeah um and so they've sort of got half a foot out the door if they haven't they they're looking outside the door um so in a way that makes our job easier you know if you're if you're sharing your house with with lots of people with very young kids it brings different problems to doing it with teenage kids i mean I don't know is the answer because we're just at the beginning of the sort of the the discernment process. Two words which make my heart sink. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're a Christian I'm influence. A I'm, a, I'm a doer, not a not a you know discerner. But what is a discerning um, process for this? What what would that look like? Are you well, gonna... I think the way we're doing it is to create a. A, a space a, you know a forum for about two dozen of us half in in Italy and half outside Italy to share ideas about all the crux themes of you know finances legal structure residency purpose you know site requirements business plan you know takes a lot of work to live like an anarchist doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> this is why i say it depends on one's life circumstances and of course on one's spouse and job and and everything else what i loved about the cosenza fans that i wrote about in in ultra you know my last book was that they would just occupy an empty building you know yeah. there's an empty building in the center of the city yeah. they will smash a window move in do it up and because they're the good guys, they would say to refugees and the homeless and families who were, you know, couldn't afford the rent, come and live here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about huge hotels confiscated from the mafia for, for various reasons. So, you know, that's one model. And there's a huge, beautiful barracks that's got a woodland all around it near where I live. And every time I cycle past, I cast a an envious eye on it and think with well, a couple of you know wire clippers and a and a really anarchist crew you could move in and you know if there's a building that's been empty for 30 years i personally don't see that as illegal it's yeah the <laughs> the, the degree to which you you take the legal route is is i find fascinating and and talking about you're coming back to your original question it is why you know good groups might go bad or yeah. bad groups have good people in them or good people want to stay in bad groups i think one of the one of the things we found is you can rationalize to yourself an incremental bureaucratization for very legitimate reasons so to give you an example hmm. you know at winshill wood we're always an absolute shoestring operation and needed funds but to get funds we weren't an official charity for, for all sorts of reasons but we had to have care plans and to have care plans it meant that we had to nudge our sort of anti-professionalism and yeah. anti anti sort of you know clericalism yeah you had to sort of Pretty soon after people came in the door, get them to do forms, you know, and then once they've done a form, you need health and safety policies, you need 
risk assessments. You know, there are all these laminated things. signs on doors and exactly, yeah. And you know, it's all sensible. And you know, the trustees of a charity will tell you this is what has to be done. Very often, there are so many unintended consequences, and I think that's what happens to so many organisations: is that the bureaucratic processes take over the the heart of what should be at the heart of the of, of the organization is it, and, is it because we're trying to make something that's going to last is that is it because we're we're building communities that we think need to have longevity oh you're such a clever man i love these questions so i think one of our one of our guests who, who came to live with us yeah. Um, went to school very near where you're sat in Beedales. Oh yeah. Where, you know, a lot of creative people come from. Yeah. From there. And she told me, and I don't know whether it's true, but I very often thought about it that the founder of Beedale said that every ten years the place should be raised to the ground and built from scratch. Oh, and I've Hallelujah. always <laughs> thought about that because I think yeah. that's yeah. so clever. If the NHS did that, or you know, a church did that, or even a community. Because that phrase that we were talking about just now about, oh, we've always done it this way, can become so poisonous. And yet I know that I, I, I want a good thing to last. And very often communal experiments only last a year or two. So, you know, Fruitlands, the, the place where uh, the Alcott family lived of little women fame, that only lasted from memory about 18 months. And, and I think if you're doing a good thing and you're offering shelter and refuge to people who are in crisis, of course you want it to last. And again, you know, my ego and vanity will be wrapped up in the longevity of the project, but it, it, it is a good thing that it should last. You know, it was interesting when we were planning our, a new family to take over Windsor Hill Woods, one of the things, I, I said to them is, you know, you can twist this differently if you want. You know, this is this is the mission statement. If you like it, you know, take the project on board. But if you decide you want to do things differently, that's fine by us. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse, as you know, than, a, you know, the former headmistress standing in the staff room with her arms crossed or his arms crossed, yep. tutting as, as there are new things done. So that that. That was really important, I think, because then then you can have longevity if, if things evolve and and change. Um, I guess the difference is, is that you helped to build something, but you yourself didn't have the longevity. So like your family stayed in Windsor Hill Wood for five years. Uh, we were there for eight. Years. Yeah. Eight years. OK. Yeah. And then and then you described the book. I mean, I I love all your books, but that that is one of the ones that's the most compelling i do like all your books it's hard to choose which one's my favorite but that one has a really compelling story to it which is because it's more autobiographical i guess i guess it mm -hmm. becomes interesting that way but and i wonder whether i don't think it's a failure that you had to move on but i wonder did you ever think of that as oh it must be a failure i only lasted eight years because i don't think it was at all I, no i i mean we, we never expected it to really, partly because, and this is one of the strange things about having a binational marriage, which, you know, are more and more common and is a 
something that more and more people are going to confront. You know, my wife was very clear before we had children that she wanted our future children to spend a large part of their childhood in Italy. So we're always going to be a bit itinerant. So we sort of thought we'll do it for seven years. And actually, we we closed it because, you know, my mother became very ill and it was very clear she was going to die quite quickly. And our consigliere, you know, our trustees, even though we weren't a charity, our consigliere said, look, you need a break, take a break. And so, you know, we 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 prepared the community for the fact that we were going to close. And the next day after that trustees meeting, someone anonymously dropped 20 grand in our bank account, the community thing, which, you know, we'd never had that much money. And then the following week, someone said they wanted to donate the adjacent 10 acre woodland. So you're then sort of asking yourself, what on earth are these messages? You know, we've just said we're, we're, we're going to have a sabbatical and then suddenly we get a lot of money and a lot of land offered. And how do you deal with that? So there's a discernment process. Yeah. What did you make of that? At the time, I mean, I wrote back to the guy. I was a bit embarrassed. I said, look, this is so generous. He didn't really want, it was clear from his donation, he didn't want really to be contacted. He just wanted to, right. but because it came through PayPal, we had his email. So I wrote to him, said, I'm really embarrassed, incredibly generous, but we're closing. And this yeah. dude wrote back and said, don't worry, you guys will know what to do with it. Uh, yeah. You know, so that kind of gave us confidence that, someone trusted us whatever we decided which frees you up to make the right decision yeah because if if a yeah. donor and that's the problem with donors is you know donors twist if yes. you're relying on on charity you know donors will twist the yeah twist the project so i want a wing named after them and <laughs> they want the the windsor hillwood memorial chapel named after them and all that stuff yeah, yeah. Course. And the, you know, the amazing thing about that documentary series on San Patrignano, the, the rehab in Italy, is that one family who made all their money from oil donated 286 million euros hmm. to the rehab over hmm. three or four decades, whatever it is. Um, so you know, inevitably that, well, it's more than nudges, it slaps the, the thing into something else. Um, but if someone if someone gives you the money and almost doesn't want contact and trusts you and your heart to do the right thing, then you have to look deeply in yourself and think what is the right thing. I think that 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 donation made us think we can reopen and we can give that money to to Windsor Woodmark too. And in the in the period of sabbatical, someone visited us. And he said, what do you need? And I said, I just need you to match fund this 20 yeah. grand we've got in our account. And he was, you know, another generous uh, sort of philanthropist. And he said, fine. So then, you know, to our successes, we could say, here's, here's a great site. The infrastructure's built. We've got all sorts of things ready for you to move in. And by the way, here's 40 grand in the account. You know, to hand it over that way makes you feel it's, it's got a future. I mean, if you leave something better than you found it and you left it so that the next people have a good running start, surely that's as good as we can ask for, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you always see the things that you've done wrong and 
still think about the things we didn't get right. The thing about communities is that a lot of them are, are isolated and a lot of them are reinventing the wheel, whereas actually the wheel is there and what works, although, you know, every every place is sort of bespoke to its its surroundings and its purpose and everything else. Actually, there is a pretty good wheel that doesn't need to be reinvented. I mean, we're, I was struck. Obviously, my my radar is up for this kind of thing. I was struck by your the center, the silence, the, the liturgical silence that you would share every day. Was it twice a day or once a day? Yeah, it was a couple of times a day. Um, why did you choose to go with the silence rather than some sort of words or wordy time? Because a lot of communities would would love to try and build themselves around shared liturgy or shared mm. word. Why did you go with silence rather than words? Um, it was mainly inclusivity. Um, so, you know, the vast, not the vast majority, but the majority of people who, who were staying with us weren't Christians. And there was just such an assortment of, of mm. faith that, you know, we did do sort of evening prayer and things on, a, on an ad hoc basis. But that silence meant that people could come and meditate or just take time and just... I think that's what I remember reading when we were just setting it up about, I think it's called Neve Shalom, isn't it? The house of silence that mm. had a terrible fire a few months ago, um, but basically set up by a, I think I'm right in saying a Jewish Dominican who, who, who wanted to create a, a, a space of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians and, and create this house of silence. So I think we were sort of influenced by that. And, you know, inevitably, Christians would come and visit and say, oh, where's the, the crucifix or where's the Bible? And people who, who weren't theists would, would come in and say, why have you got, I don't know. A chapel. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was always hard to, it was always hard to, to get the balance right. But there's, you weren't reinventing the wheel, though. Right. I mean, you were not you, at all. You were no. getting people to join something that, frankly, has been going for a long time. Something like these communities have been going for a long time. Yeah, I mean, our our model was was obviously the Pilsden community down in Dorset, which is modelled on Little Gidding, and Little Gidding was modelled on. So, yeah, there is yeah. there is a torch that's been passed down, and there's so much good literature on how to live together and there are ones that are very austere and you know sinewy like the great Bonhoeffer's life together and then there are sort of very deep ones by you know people like Jean Vanier who, mm. you know his brokenness and community is such a slim book yeah um and yet that you know has so much wisdom in it so yeah there's a there's a great lot of of wisdom about how to do it did you have these were these new experiences for you did you bring them to the founding of your community or did you learn them when you were at your community um no i mean i think you know i'd lived communally a fair bit and i'd right you know i'd been a, a trustee at pilsden for five years and i'd you know my my default setting when i've got a problem or need to become a little 
wiser is always to race through a massive bibliography. So, you know, I'd read the books. So we were pretty, pretty experienced, but then, you know, you're always learning, aren't you? Um, and I'm very interested in how, you know, we come from an obvious tradition that we've mentioned, but how environmental communities are slightly different. So, you know, the vast majority yeah. of intentional communities that are set up now are almost always environmental endeavors. I think there's a very, not very, there, there is a, a noticeable difference in sort of the human interactions there but i imagine they'll attract a different type of person as well right because if you're set up to intentionally be an environmental uh, project or environmentally responsible project you're probably going to attract a different type of person than what you had coming to to your place where you said any any broken broken lonely people hurting and come to us. And that's not exactly the same types of people that are going to come. No, to although there's a large overlap because I think people call it nature deficit disorder, which is a you know, slightly lumpy sounding term for just the longing to be in, in the, on the land and, yeah. and close to nature. I think, you know, everyone, lots of people have that sense of a mourning for, for a lack of, interaction with nature whether you are looking for it or not and I, I only say that because I think a lot of a lot of people who came to us found living in a rural part of Somerset with some pasture and some woodland you know nature did the trick which is it's what happens in a lot of environmental communities as well and yeah it's 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 it's, it's difficult because unless one talks about examples, one's generalising, but I don't really want to name examples of places where I've hung out that I found a bit alarming. But I think that sort of messianic sense of being a saviour can obviously occur in a, in a Christian community, but it also happens in environmental communities. But there are maybe less alarm bells about the symptoms or the signs of it. So there's less maybe emphasis on humility yeah. and you know if you think you're saving the world by saving you know the planet the stakes are high and and you know you want people to to obey you and you know there are there are issues there are issues i um, mean the christian community come on we both know that it's no uh <laughs> it's no utopia uh but at least it has with it a few checks and balances that you have to deliberately ignore but the idea like yeah to, to put a check on power or to put a check on um hubris like there are some things that the christian tradition has with it that could be used to to keep a community um level or to, to uh, like a level playing field or to draw the leader back down to earth i guess i don't i don't know what mm. the word i'm looking for because it's hard to say because any observer of christian communities knows that they're hardly an example of things being done right, but they have the tools at least. It's very interesting. I mean, I think if your point of departure is, well, put it this way, the founder of the Pilsden communities, Percy Smith, who was a maverick Anglican priest who founded it in the, in the late fifties, mm. 1950s, he said, you know, this is a school for sinners, not a museum of saints. And that idea that we are, 
imperfect we use whatever language you want yeah on the religious or non-religious spectrum we are fallen we are sinners we are useless we're imperfect we are blah 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 then you've got inbuilt hopefully antibodies to that hubris or arrogance or and i think the complacency that it's possible to to create in a group and and the sense of we used to call it drawing up pulling up the drawbridge when you know everyone was very comfortable and sitting around the table everyone had benefited from the open door policy but now it's very comfortable and don't really want to share the table with the next person so let's close the door let's pull up the drawbridge and and our job was always to push the drawbridge down and actually instinctively i think communities turn in on themselves and yeah this is one of the things I was going to ask. This has led quite actually naturally because you live in Italy now. Yeah. In Italy. So we got patriotism, partisanship, fascism. Uh, like some of these, these movements, Italians, sometimes they invented them and they certainly have perfected them in some ways. Like how do we, what do you do, what do you do about making a group to resist that or do you try and resist the partisan patriotic impulse that's deeply embedded into humans? Do you, do you try and resist that? Or do you think that it's something we can, we can ever eradicate from our communities? Well, it depends what you mean by patriotism, I suppose. I mean, you know, Italy is famously unpatriotic, which people are often surprised by, because as you say, you know, Mussolini found fascism and that's, that's right. sort of, you know, militaristic pride in the, in the, in the nation. But actually, Italians aren't patriotic. Well, know, maybe for the patch of land, maybe for the patria. Exactly. They call it campanilismo, which is yeah. the attachment to their local bell tower. Right. Uh, exactly. So let's talk about that, which is going to be more equivalent, more, more appropriate if we're talking about community living. Yeah, it's a parochialism, isn't it, I suppose? It's, is it possible to live without that? And do we want to? Well, again, it depends what you mean. I mean... I one of the most influential books for me was the need for roots, and Who she says that? at the beginning, Simone Weil. Oh yeah, of course, okay. Mm. And she said at the beginning of that, you know, the need for rootedness is one of the most important needs of the human soul. And I was reading this in you know probably the turn of the century when it seemed there was absolute rootlessness and no sense of belonging, and so you know. I've thought for a very long time that rootedness and belonging are urgent needs of, of our age. It depends what we slid into this, this sort of discussion through patriotism and, and parochialism and, and attachment to a bell tower. Attachment to, to things is obviously, you know, tends to bring problems. Mm. it's it's about it's about for me it's about various things one is about conceitedness you know we are great and you guys aren't great we're the goodies you're the mm. bads. we're the insiders you're the outsiders mm-hmm. um which comes down to you know obviously boundaries and behaviors and everything else but actually the flip side of that is that without without being rooted in a place it's sort of almost impossible to fruit. The hardest thing about the process of discernment <laughs> for the for the you know putative future community mm. is that people will say, "Oh, well, what do you guys want to do next? What are you going to do?" 
and it's sort of the horse and the car. It's difficult to say until we find the site, but it's difficult to find the site until we know what we're doing. So you're sort of feeling in the dark a bit until you, you it's, it's place specific. I don't know if I've sort of answered your question or just waffled, but. But so we, so often I think we confuse being rooted in place specific with, with that kind of fierce uh, insider outsider. Mm. And so we say, oh no, humans need rootedness in a place in order to thrive. Therefore, we should endorse this kind of violent, patriotic insider outsider nature. And, and I feel like saying, well, a community that's always trying to push the drawbridge down, that is a still a rooted community that is not being defined by its insider outsider nature. So you can have rootedness without protectionism. Right? You can and you can't. Okay. I mean, I think so, you know, Ellen Rostrom is fascinating, Nobel Prize winning you know, political scientist, when she drew up the requirements for a functioning group, she said the very first thing you need is um, to be able to control the membership, to say who, who's in and who's out effectively. And, you know, already alarm bells start ringing for most of us thinking, hang on, you know, I don't like that, you know, borders bound is bad. Um, and yet take it down to the micro level. If you are running a rehab and someone is using or boozing or being violent, you have to escort them off the premises. So even though I'm talking about, you know, always keeping the drawbridge down and being an open door community, we had to ask people to leave. And, 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 and if you don't have that mechanism, yeah, I think it's more dangerous but it's kind of self-selecting. So it's, I'm not saying you can't have insider out. You can't say that there's membership that we don't have member. We don't have insiders and outsiders. What you can say is we do have insiders and outsiders, but anyone can be an insider. And this is what it looks like. So they self-select. If you want to join us, you can, and this is what it looks like. And if you don't look like this anymore, then you have chosen not to be one of us, right? which is different than you yourself saying, I choose you, I don't choose you, I choose you, you're in, you're out. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm, I'm only pausing, Stephen, because I'm sort of thinking of examples where we have left communities because mm -hmm. we didn't feel a part of it or we didn't feel we could be ourselves, mm -hmm. honestly, who we are, yeah. in that space and in the slightly sort of painful disentangling and this is i'm talking you know places we stayed for a few weeks or or so not for years mm -hmm. it would often be couched in the terms of what you've just said you knew when you were coming here this is what we do and you know i mean i don't really want to name the community i'm talking about but there's sort of well, there's one very near you <laughs> It's, it's difficult to sort of create meaning and identity to a group if anything goes. And, you know, that's what, again, why I find the ultras so fascinating because, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, the ultras are the sort of the hardcore stroke sort of hooligan, impassioned Italian football fans. And, you know, in some ways they're the most open group because they will 
scream at you to be involved in the singing and the clapping and the jumping on a yeah. Sunday football match. And yeah. yet when you go to their headquarters on a Tuesday night for the meeting, there will be bodyguards on the door. And, you know, unless you're known by the people on the door, you really struggle to get in. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting example of both a very open group and a very closed group. Most groups are like that because it's in the interest of groups to be open sometimes and to be closed to others. So where does that get us? I don't know. I mean, I often, I often do point out that like the Sermon on the Mount is a terrible rule of life if you're trying to run a country. So a lot of Christians say, well, we don't follow the Sermon on the Mount because you can't run a country that way. And I just look at them going, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's, you're right. Like uh, pointing out that you can't build a, a patriotic movement on the Sermon on the Mount doesn't prove to me that the Sermon on the Mount is a bad thing. It just proves to me that maybe patriotic countries are a bad thing. But you see, Jesus chose, didn't he? He chose his disciples. So when you, you know, when you were saying earlier, it's not like you've chosen the people. Actually, hmm. he he chose people. And, you know, at the very start of this process for a possible, you know, new communal project in Italy, yeah. I wrote to a wise friend of mine who's sort of given us advice for a long time and I said how are we going to do this shall I just send this letter out into the world and and see what comes in he said no you need to choose your 12 and so and, and I'm afraid that's why intentional communities always have an element of sort of eugenics about them I, I I'm, I'm wondering whether we're making a mistake trying to recreate Windsor Hill Wood in the Apennine Hills outside Palmer and whether actually a much more radical thing to do would be something less chosen and sort of puppeted and eugenic and something more organic that grows out of the context in which we're living. See who the Lord sends you kind of thing. Yeah, I'm quite a patient guy, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. I think. So as, as, as difficult as it is to, to start these things and live in community, what are you missing right now? That, because you're not living in community, what are you missing right now? Well, the honest answer to that, which doesn't sound very noble is that I am missing, um, you know, I'm missing nature. You know, I'm missing, I live in a flat with no garden. Yeah. So that's one one thing. I think a sense of sort of very clear purpose. I'm missing hard manual labour, which I actually love. Uh, you know, I love fencing or splitting logs or planting trees or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm missing the division of labour so that you're not cooking every night and washing up every night. I miss the sort of the sociability um there's lots of stuff i don't miss but funnily enough i think the people who are who are sort of wary and slightly scared of communal living actually often survive it better than the people who come and say oh this is a paradise this this is this is a dream you know the people who used to roll up and get all floaty and huggy on the first day you know you think they won't last a week whereas the people who say this is going to be a nightmare because of course it is often yeah. um would survive longer that's interesting. See, the fellow traveler is not always immediately apparent. 
there is mm. such a thing as a fellow traveler but they aren't always the ones that you choose and they're not always the ones that say they're fellow travelers right mm-hmm. it's a bit like that story that jesus tells about the two brothers and the the father says i want you to do this for me and one brother says no i won't do it but then he goes away and does it anyway and the second brother says yes i will do it and then he sits down and doesn't do anything and Jesus mm. says, well, which one is the is the true son? <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, it's a bit like, oh, yeah, just the people who sh- jump up and down and say, I love fellow, I'm a fellow traveler. It doesn't mean they are one, does it? Mm. And I think, you know, so many of these issues are so relevant for churches and the ways in which churches attempt to create community and don't create community I find absolutely fascinating yeah and you know I've spent decades uh in 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 church groups everything from sort of high Anglican to to Quaker so and normally the inability of of church leadership to not always but often to to do radical things I remember once you know there was a a church heavily involved in for years mm. and they were doing a envisioning process and said you know what's your vision and I said well look you've got a, a two or three acre field in the middle of this town let's turn it into a communal garden or communal spot and you know do something and it just it, it couldn't and wouldn't happen yeah. yeah and and so actually if 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 what a church going group shares is liturgy and hymn numbers that's what they're going to argue about so it's you know but we never sing this hymn or we sing that hymn or we like the 1662 or no no we like this so you know suddenly things which shouldn't be divisive can become incredibly divisive because that's all we share and it makes people wary about sharing anymore you know i'm not saying everyone has to go and live together but income pooling as, as, as a church I saw a fascinating talk I can't remember where by some dude and he, he went to this huge church and he said you know are you guys tithing are you, are you sharing your your incomes and then he said no we can't do that because that would be you know against privacy or whatever you know there yeah, are so many that. reasons not to not to share things and you know the amount of land and buildings and wealth that ecclesiastical organizations locked away yeah and you know there are tens of thousands of devout jesus followers who are breaking their guts to try and create communal projects off their own meager earnings because lots of us hippie types have very small earnings you know and and you see a church that has so much land that is is farmed badly for profit and not not given to people who could plow it you know as 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 a group so well i know you know that's a that's another rich scene but i think you know the way that churches because you know there was this phase about 10 15 years ago that every sermon the word community came up yeah and you know there's all sorts of fascinating theological stuff about you know being together as a community from you know, the acts of the apostles onwards and and there's so much learning about it but actually in terms of practice i just 
I find very sad. I'm actually on, by the time this interview goes out, it'll have been released, but I'm actually one of the commissioners, the uh, Ch- uh, Church of England Housing Commission. Mm. And it's, it's a bit like, if you remember, uh, Justin Welby made some comments about payday loans a while ago, and he, mm. and, and he decided to have like a national conversation about that. He's doing the same thing about the housing crisis right now in the UK, well, in England. And, um, and I'm one of the commissioners. And we are trying to put together like a coordinated policy for housing wow. in all of England. Yeah. And that the church, it's very interesting. And what you're describing is, is something that we definitely are, have to deal with. And one of the things we're dealing with is this institutional idea, this idea that like the Church of England, when it comes down to it, is not actually a body of people following the way of Jesus. It's an apparatus for protecting and maintaining and prolonging certain structures and patches of land in the country. <laughs> it's, it operates a little bit more like a museum than it does like a movement that's following Jesus. And, and so their, their primary role is actually to just preserve this land or to make money out of it. I mean, that's like baked into their laws, some of, the, some of these laws. It's like the law of the land. And it's just, it is very frustrating. <laughs> you know, you've got pensions that have got to be paid to former yep. priests. I mean, I know that yep. I know the problem. The trouble is, is that I think of the village where I grew up, beautiful little tiny village in Somerset. And there, you know, the church constantly needs five or six figure sums to do up a beautiful old building that everyone in the village would be appalled yeah. to see go, but only three people go on a Sunday. The whole energy of the, of the village to save the church is raising money to fix the roof. And, you know, I often think if the, if the churches didn't have those big buildings, if there were a national trust of ecclesiastical buildings that takes responsibility for them, and if it can't, they fall to the ground, it would, it would, it would relieve the church of burden. Yeah, but, sure. you know, in terms of the housing thing, I mean, I think I'm delighted to hear that the situation might be changing, but... It, it takes real wisdom, as you know, to get that right, to know how to open up space to those in need and not just because they may need housing. There are other needs of, of people which are, you know, everything we've been talking about, sociability and contact with nature and purpose. And so how Church of England as a, as a landlord um, squares that surface is, is not I, simple is it i don't know i don't know if these are a job for big institutions i wonder whether it is actually a job for smaller groups traveling a bit lower and lighter across the ground you know and being willing to run things just for a while and then pass it on rather than thinking that we're here for 600 years and we're going to be here for another 600 mm-hmm. i i wonder whether that itself that longevity and the largeness of the institution is itself its barrier to using its its stuff well that's my suspicion <laughs> yeah i mean that sort of makes me think of one of my concerns and again who knows if it's ego or vanity or altruism or a mix of all the above but i kind of often think i want to scale up you know if you've had over the course of a very enjoyable but pretty grueling seven or eight years running a an extended family house 
if actually you draw up the list of all the people who have lived with you and it's only 100 or so, give or take 10, you think, blimey, is, is, is that it? And, you know, can't this model be replicated? And couldn't we enable other people to, you know, recreate this thing? So I'm sort of interested in scaling up and what you sacrifice when you do scale up. Because I agree with you, you know, I think small is beautiful and local is good. And But I, I do see sort of some people have tiny ideas that go very wide and, and whether actually that's, that's obviously a good thing if it doesn't become only existing to, to serve itself. Yeah, groups of people organizing themselves to clutch tightly to what is rightfully theirs mm, makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of good arguments to be a NIMBY. But it's just that none of them are open to the follower of the way of Jesus. I think that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I hard mean... to be a NIMBY. It's easy to be a NIMBY in this world, but it's hard to be one and also want to be connected to the, the Jesus tradition. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you've got you're going to have a back garden you're going to have a backyard as you re as you recreate a community where you are now how are you feeling about this how's your family feeling about this is your wife keen to do this or is this a conversation that you have with the deep breath and say i want to start again or is your is everyone kind of pulling in the same direction i mean i'm certainly you know i'm certainly the one who's keen and I don't bang drums, but, you know, I sort of, mm. I am convening people and mm -hmm. inviting people. And I don't know, it's, it's difficult to say, Stephen. I think, you know, she's obviously, you know, we're a team and we do yeah. things together. And I do, all, I think well, you'd have to ask her. I mean, I do all the, the obvious things. If, if, they had if they had written your book, if they had written... A place where your your wife, if she had written it, what what do you think she would have emphasized? Well, I, I kind of know the answer to that question because we've spoken about it a lot. I mean, it's one of the main things for her was always it, it shouldn't become an institution, that it mm. shouldn't become that place with laminated signs on fire doors, and yeah. it shouldn't become a place where you know people fill in forms in the first half hour there. So you know. Yeah. It was always about keeping it as a family home, yeah. Which obviously adds to one's responsibilities because you know, being house proud isn't a bad thing. It sounds a bit bourgeois, but it's sort of that sense of welcome and comfort and cradling and nesting and you know. So all that side, I think, was very important, and that kept us away from what often happens in these places that nobody owns anything or looks after anything or um... no you need a home for people to come into it needs to be a home you can't just be a, a communal common it's not just a jcr of a college right it needs to be an actual place where people want to be and for that i suppose you need some sort of insider core group to make it right so i think that was that was one of one of her key things. i mean she's just very wise about humans and very good at listening and talking to people even in a language that isn't her own you know because she's being italian and that's you know something else that is another huge deep vein of you know for future discussion is how you do communal living in a language that isn't your own you know it's hard enough in your own language and and more than the language problem is 
how do you do it in a culture that doesn't prize listening anything like as highly as you do i i'm looking forward please write this book in english even if you're going to be doing it in italian please mm. do write it in english because i'd love to I'd love to observe what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels to me a bit like sort of who knows what will happen, but I mean, it feels a bit, you know, I will write it and it will be sort of a, the closing of the trilogy of, you know, Utopian Dreams, A Place of Refuge, and then whatever this ends up being. But I, who knows what it will be? I mean, it may be that, you know, we stay in the city and who knows? I don't know. But we are trying to, trying to work out, trying to work out what it is. Well... Tobias Jones, I'm going to wind this talk down. You've given me such a lot of time and I absolutely love it. Do you have any uh, last words? A lot of my uh, listeners, we have been at the moment watching the the, cap the, the riots in Washington, D.C. and they've been uh, dismayed by patriotism and partisanship in, in North America. And then we're seeing it happen in the U.K. as well. What, any, any kind of uh, observations that you want to draw <laughs> to help us navigate some of these spaces? You're an observer of partisan groups yourself. Mm. It's, yeah, it's so sad, isn't it? I mean, mm. the piece I've been wanting to write and wanting to do is about peacemaking and what it, what it requires to be a peacemaker. So we did a lot of yeah. uh, nonviolent communication, which I'm sure your listeners know a lot about. And friends of ours have worked for Chips that Christian and Peace. Yeah, spoke. I know Chips. And, yeah, yeah. And that's the piece I want to write. That's the work I want to do. And it's very easy to demonize. And I think what, you know, as, as well as facing down any form of, of fascism, we also shouldn't demonize people who will then be confirmed in their own hatred. So, how that how that process of of peacemaking works is 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 difficult but you know britain needs it italy yeah. needs it america needs it you know yeah. Yeah. there's nowhere that doesn't need peace building marriages need it so yeah. i kind of think that's that's what i want to to do and i'm not quite sure how i will either write the piece or or, or do that work yeah. um, but uh, that's, yeah. that's where my thinking is at the moment, and that's tightly tied to listening. And I'm, I'm sort of slightly fixated on on listening. And as a writer, you always have half a dozen book ideas whizzing around your head, and and that's one that I've had for a very long time. Sort of the the lack of listening in contemporary culture. So those two things, I think, are, are linked. Yeah, and probably something there, a connection between the lack of nature. In people's in our urban lives and the lack of mm -hmm. listening there's probably mm -hmm. something there right yeah yeah, yeah. over communicated over concretized over electronic age mm -hmm. well thank you so much for joining the tent i was really happy to talk with you i don't often get to meet uh, authors that i admire as much as i do yours you and your book so thank you so much tobias jones for joining us uh, i you. wish you well and i can't wait to read the next one about the River Po. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super. Um, thanks, Stephen. I feel like I've had a therapy session. Oh, I feel like let's talk uh, again. Any uh, peacemaking uh, mm -hmm. is absolutely, absolutely something that's uh, hot on my list of how Good. to organize peaceful communities and how to hold ourselves well without becoming the the thing that we're fighting. Right. I think yeah, being yeah. a peacemaker is way more than just shouting at a fascist. 
Mm. Got to do better than that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. No, to stay in touch, Stephen. I'd love to, you know, swap ideas and you know Absolutely. meet up. I'm often in normal times, often in Sussex. So, um, you know. And there's, I just remembered now that there's a whole new thing on. There was, I wanted to talk with you ages ago about powers and principalities and 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 the work I'm doing on organizational health and how humans structure their power is actually very related to the New Testament language of powers and principalities. And I wanted to ask you one day. Have you ever seen that stuff happening? But that will be mm. a conversation for another mm. time, I think. <laughs> and have a look at have a look at. I don't know if you're a Netflix man, but if you are, try and get hold of that San Patrignano documentary because it is so fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, oh, I can't wait. Cheers, Thank Stephen. You Thank you very Good much. Thank you. Cheers, brother. Bye. Goodbye. To further support the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.